Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I need God, and I needed him a lot this week. Um, for those of you who are aware or aren't aware, if you are in or out of the loop, um, I want to start just by thanking you for your prayers um, for my family and especially for Grant. Grant had kind of been on and off sick the past couple of weeks with a fever, and so we took him to the doctor um, to have some tests done, and they came back on Monday night and told us that they were pretty certain that Grant had leukemia, and we had to go up to the hospital in Oklahoma City to get it checked out further. Um, so that became a very long night um, with more tests and plenty of doctors, but um, thanks largely to your prayers, I believe. They came back and said, well, I don't know why they sent you here because there's nothing wrong with them. Um, and we went to the doctor again Friday and they sent those original tests up to Oklahoma City as well to look at those and those came back and said, well, I don't see anything here either. Um, so it's either just somebody made a really big mistake or God worked a pretty crazy miracle. Um, either way, I'm beyond grateful and very happy. Um, so thank you for that so much. Um, now for our text this morning, I, I love movies, as many of you know, and one of my favorite movies is the Mission Impossible series. Um, they keep just making more and more of those, and they don't, uh, I think they get better each time. Maybe you disagree, but that's okay. One of their uh, finding, defining features of them, right, is Tom Cruise's character will always get summoned or some kind of mission at the beginning, and this thing will pop up with a recording and tell him, okay, your mission, Ethan Hunt, should you choose to accept it? And of course, I mean, they always choose to accept it, otherwise it wouldn't really be a movie afterwards. And so then the movie is, you know, chasing this impossible mission they've chosen to accept it. But this morning we're going to find um, our, our last judge in the person of Samson. We're going to look at half of his life this morning. What we're going to see is the story of somebody who gets a mission, much like Tom Cruise in those, but he chooses not to accept it. Um, he declines his mission and he spends most of his time kind of doing whatever he wants instead of what God has asked him to do. And so we're going to see, well, what happens when we do that? And we're going to look, and especially for ourselves, and then look at our own mission. Well, how does that affect how we should live in the mission God has given us? And so we're going to be in the book of Judges. If you would turn there, um, we're going to read through all of chapter 13 and 14. Um, if you're visiting with us or newer, this is our habit. Um, we read through all of God's word um, that we're going to talk about just because we believe this really is the word of God. And we put a high premium on listening to it and reading it and valuing it. Um, so I'm going to invite our family pastor Rob up and he is going to read it for us. So stand with me if you're able, um, just as we read through God's word together. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. There a certain man from Zorah from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah and his wife his wife was unable to conceive and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, this, it is true that you are unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or eat anything unclean. For indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth. He will begin to save, the Israel, if, be save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Then the woman went and told her husband, and a man of God came to me. He looked like an awe-inspiring angel of God. 
I didn't think to ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. He said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not drink wine or beer or eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. Manoah prayed to God and said, Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field, and her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told him, The man who came to me the other day just came back. So Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he asked, Are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah said, When your words come true, what will the boy's responsibility, what will be the boy's, your, the boy's responsibilities and work? The angel of the Lord answered Manoah, Your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine or beer, and she must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I have commanded her. Please stay here, Manoah said, and we will prepare a small goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, If I stay, I won't eat your food, but if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not know he was an angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, What is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name, the angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock to the Lord, who did something miraculous. While Manoah and his wife were watching, when the fire went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized it was an angel of the Lord. We're certainly going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offerings and the grain offerings from us. He would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us like this. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Samson went to Timah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his mother and his father and mother, I've seen a young Philistine woman in Timah. Go get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Can't you find a young woman among your relatives and among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She is right for me. Now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord. Who wanted the Philistines to pr provide an opportunity for a confrontation. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. Samson went down to Timah with his father and mother and came to a vineyard in Timah. Suddenly, a young lion came roaring at him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson. After some time, when he returned to marry her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass. And there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped up some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. 
When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's carcass. His father went to visit the woman and Samson prepared a feast there as men were accustomed to do. When the Philistines saw him, they brought 30 men to accompany them, accompany him. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you explain it to me during the seven days of the feast and figure it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot explain it to me, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they replied. Let's hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater comes something to eat, and out of the strong comes something sweet. After three days, they were unable to explain the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, persuade your husband to explain this riddle to us, or we will burn you and your family, your father's family, to death. Have you invited us here to rob us? So Samson's wife came to him weeping and said, you hate me and don't love me. You've told my people the riddle, but you haven't explained it to me. Look, he said, I haven't explained it to my father or mother. Why should I explain it to you? She wept the whole seven days of the feast, and at last on the seventh day he explained to her because she nagged him so much. When she explained it to her people on the seventh day before sunset, the men of the city said to him, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you would not have known my riddle now. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. He stripped them and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Enraged, Samson returned to his father's house, and his wife was given to one of the men who had accompanied him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, bow with me as we pray. Dear God, thank you so much for, for your word, God. Um, give, give David the words that you want him to, to speak to us this morning out of this passage, God. Um, we lift everything to your heavenly son's name. Amen. Can be seated. Thank you. So point number one, if you're taking notes inside your bulletin or another way that you like to do that, our first point is that we have all been given a call and a mission from God. That all of us have been given a call and a mission from God. And we see this in the story of Samson. And the story of Samson is unusual compared to many of the other judges. And it's unusual in the fact, at first, that it begins not with Samson, but with his parents. We see this narrative about a child being given a mission from God before he's even born. In fact, before he's even conceived. Before he's ever done a single thing, before his mom even has an idea that maybe she could be pregnant. And the angel of the Lord appears to the mother of Samson. And you notice in this whole story too, his mother's name is never mentioned. His father's name is mentioned. His tribe is mentioned. Samson obviously is mentioned because he has a name, but his mother's name is always absent. It's always the wife or that woman, even as how her husband talks about her. And that's intentional. Now, it's not intentional because the Bible or God thinks that she doesn't matter because the Bible actually thinks she matters a lot. Because look at what it says in verse 2. It mentions that his wife was barren and had no children. Barren women, especially at this time, were looked down upon. They were seen as they've done something wrong or they're cursed by God because if they were blessed, they would have children and there must be something wrong because there's no kids. Nothing is more shameful in the ancient world than to have no children and no descendants and to have your name die out after you. So this is someone who would not be thought of highly by anyone. 
And yet God sees this woman. We don't know her name now, but God did. And God chose to appear to her, not to her husband. And he shows up to her alone and he tells her, not just that she'll be pregnant, she will have a son. 13.5, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. Child will be a Nazarite for, to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's not just going to be a son, but he's going to be the next judge. And he's going to help save your nation from the oppressors who are over you. And not just a regular judge, he's going to be an even more special judge. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to, and a Nazarite is someone who is set apart from birth to honor God. You can read more about this if you want to study it more in number 6. It's a whole chapter that kind of details Nazarite vows. Now normally they're taken for a specific amount of time. They're not something that somebody would do for their entire life. But God says, no, this man, your son is going to be so special that from the womb to the time of his death, he's going to be consecrated and set apart for me. So he has this special calling. And a part of this vow, he keeps not just the law, as every Israelite should do, not just regular obedience to God, but he also needs to go one step further. He needs to not drink any wine or anything from the vine or any alcohol and not, never eat anything unclean. And then also not shaving his hair. Those are parts that are kind of above and beyond it. And so Samson's wife goes, and, or not Samson's wife, Samson's mother goes and tells her husband, but her husband kind of has a hard time believing all right, he's not quite sure. Of course, that'd probably be our response too if someone said, hey, I told, saw an angel and they told me something miraculous. You're like, really? I mean, okay, I guess, sure. Maybe we'd tell them, oh yeah, that's great. In the back of our minds, we would doubt it. But Manoah doubts, but he actually does the right thing. He prays. He prays to God and says, God, if you really did this, would you, would you come do it again? Would you confirm it? Would you let me see that it's, this is what you want too? And... He shows up, but the angel, again, he doesn't show up to, Manoah's, to Manoah, he shows up to Manoah's wife. And she has to go get him while the angel waits. It's, again, just a small way to show that God sees her. You might think that maybe, well, I'm too insignificant. Maybe other people get missions from God. I'm not sure about me. This shows us that God sees those that the world may overlook. And so he comes and he confirms, again, no, your child is going to be a Nazarite. And Noah's question is really kind of key in 12. And he says, well, when these words come true, which is good, it shows his faith part. It's not just, well, if this happens, it's, okay, I believe you. So when this happens, what is to be the child's manner of life? What's his mission? And the ESV uses that word, the, the mission that he has. So Samson gets this special calling in this mission, he is to be a Nazarite and a savior of his people. This is what he should be and dedicated to. And so, so we get a whole chapter that, all right, here is your mission, Samson, if you choose to accept it. This is what it's going to be. Well, we'd, we'd think, okay, well, the next three chapters of his life are going to be him kind of living out that mission, right? And we'll see. But what we see is he doesn't quite do that. But that's a lot of expectations to be born into, don't you think? To right away be told, hey, you're going to be the Savior. You're going to deliver us. Now, maybe you're not going to save us all the way, but you're at least going to begin to do this. I don't know, maybe you um, had some expectations from your parents when you were born. Or maybe a little bit after still, maybe somebody hoped you would go into the family business or hoped you would, you know, follow in your parents' footsteps. Or maybe they hoped you really wouldn't go into the family business. Maybe, they, you know, Samson, his calling, it's not a family one. It is a divine one. It is something given from God. But all of us too, not just like Samson, in another way, we all have also been given a call and a mission from God. 
Every single one of us. And this came from before we were born. If you are a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus, well, Jesus came and died and called out to you to join his family before any of us were born. We were all invited to come in. And then we also were given a mission before any of us was born. As sons and daughters of the king, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are called to live our lives not just for ourselves, not just for what we want, not just for what we want to do, but to live our lives centered around the king and the kingdom and what he would have us do. This mission is best explained in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew. When Jesus, and he stood up on the mount before he ascended into heaven and looked at all his disciples and he said, Go, therefore, into the nations, make disciples, baptize them and teach them to obey my commandments. Before any of us were born or our parents were born, we were all called and given the mission to go into the world, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach people to follow Jesus. That's our calling and that's our mission. And every single Christian has this mission. It's not just for pastors like me and Rob. It's not just for elders. It's for all of us. It's for every single believer who has ever lived and who ever will live after us. It's for men and for women. It's for all the children in the back who will come and follow Jesus. This is our calling and this is our mission. But how will Samson respond to his mission? How will we respond? Well, point number two, we see that, well, we can follow God's mission or our own mission. We have a choice. We can follow our own God's mission or we can follow our own mission. In the next chapter, in chapter 14, we see Samson as a grown man. And if it's your first time reading this story, if you haven't, or if you hadn't studied Samson in a long time, you might kind of be surprised at what happens when we catch up with him. You'd think he would be doing really great, but that's not exactly what happens. Let me kind of summarize chapter 14 before we dive into it a little more. Basically, we find out that Samson is not living out God's mission. He's just doing his own thing. He violates his Nazarite vows continually throughout this chapter and really throughout the rest of the book. We see him doing that. And we see him here primarily. He wants to have a foreign wife. He wants to marry somebody who worships other gods. The Bible forbids this, not because it has a problem with the other nations, but because it has a problem with the other nations' gods. And all the other nations are invited to come into Israel and abandon their gods and worship God. We see several stories of that happening. And we've met, read, and studied many of those, like Rahab and Ruth. You can marry foreign people if they come and join God and become Israelites and abandon their gods. The problem isn't that they're Philistines. The problem is that they are idol worshipers. And so his parents are against it and try and talk him out of it, but he goes along with it anyway. And then he starts a bet with some of his new Philistine neighbors and they has a riddle and they cheat. And then he gets angry and goes on a murder rampage. And that's where the chapter ends. It's a strange chapter. It's kind of weird. Probably after we read it, you thought, okay, pastor, well, what are you going to do with that? What does that have to do with anything, especially with what I'm doing here today? Don't think I get in many riddle competitions with Philistines. I don't know about you. But so we'll start right away and let's look at Samson. It's kind of an overview. But what we see here is that Samson decides not to follow God's mission. Right away, it talks about how well he's going down to Timna. And at Timna, he sees one of the daughters of the Philistines. Well, of course he does. It's a Philistine city. So what do we do? We see Samson, and we see him going down to the Philistines. If you're first time, you would think, great, he's going down to fight the Philistines. He's going down to save God's people. Nope, he's going down to get a Philistine wife. And he's going down to just hang out. He's not going to be a judge. 
And we see he sees one of these daughters, and it's a common thread too. This is only one of the first many women that Samson sees and uses and abuses for his own desires. And so he sees her, and he wants her as his wife, and he acts really like a child. And he comes to his parents and says, Mommy, Daddy, go get her for me. In verse 2. He's a grown man. I don't think this, the way this is especially written in kind of some of the ways that it's worded, it's not like he's being a really good Middle Eastern son who's asking his parents to arrange it. It seems much more like he's a spoiled brat who's saying, get that for me because that's what I want. And his parents rightly object because they, hey, no, Samson, uh, we're not supposed to do that. So, no, isn't, isn't this wrong? Are they trying to say, is there a woman from one of the daughters of your relatives or any of our people? Isn't there literally anyone else, Samson, other than the Philistines that you could find to marry? Shouldn't you do that? Can we not marry idol worshipers? We're not supposed to do this as followers of God. And especially if you're a Nazarite, you're supposed to be a cut above. You're supposed to be above reproach. You're supposed to be really set apart for God and following his mission. And yet you don't seem to do that. And Samson doesn't want to follow God's mission. He says this explicitly in verse 3. I love the way that the ESV has this set because it, it points out the difference here. He says, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. In my eyes. Verse 7, he does it again. For the woman was right in Samson's eyes. It's not just telling us that, well, she was really beautiful and she wanted us. It's comparing to all the other times we've read in the book of Judges. If you go back to Judges 13, well, the people, again, did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. That's a phrase that's repeated close to 20 times all throughout the book. And yet here Samson says, well, it might be evil in the Lord's eyes, but in my eyes, this is right. In my eyes, this is good. He doesn't really care about God's mission at all. He's doing his own thing. And yet, despite not really caring about God's mission, God is gracious and God is still with him. God doesn't abandon him. God doesn't throw him away. And so when he's walking along in verse 5 and a young lion comes out roaring to grab him, that would be quite the surprise if you're just strolling along and a lion attacked you. And yet here, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And though he has nothing in his hands in 14.6, he tears the lion to pieces as one tears a goat. God saves him anyway. But it's interesting how he responds in 6. He didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. That may be the first time you saw that too, you go, well, why not? That seems like something you would tell somebody. Hey, I got attacked by a lion yesterday. You know, even if it pretty much mauled you, you would tell people about that. You'd especially tell somebody about it if you killed it with your bare hands. I know I would. I'd be telling everybody possible about it. Because look what I did. I'm pretty awesome. This is great. But Samson doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? Well, the reason is because Nazarites aren't supposed to touch things that are dead. Or even in, in Numbers and other places it says, hey, if you accidentally kill somebody or if you touch a dead body, you need to go consecrate yourself. You need to go make some sacrifices. You need to go get right with God. Because whether it was an accident or not, you're, you're now unclean. So you've got to fix this. Well, the fact that Samson doesn't tell his parents means he doesn't really care about his Nazarite vows. Now, if I tell my parents about this, they're going to make me make sacrifices to God. I'm going to have to go through all this hoopla and stuff. And, you know, I don't really care about God. I don't really care that I'm unclean. So I'm just not going to tell them. That, I think, is why Samson doesn't do it. He's just going through the motions. He'd rather pretend to be a Nazarite than to actually be one and follow God. And it's not enough that he did this and then lies about it or hides it. He then, verse 8, he goes on his way back. And it says, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. He just wants to go take a peek. 
Let me just go look at it. Let me see what's, what's going on there. This again, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be around things that are dead. He's not even supposed to be in the presence of them. So he again is choosing actively to abandon the mission and the calling of God and do his own thing. And what's interesting that he sees is, well, he finds in the lion's body bees and honey. Which is strange, but what Samson finds is what all of us find. When you go looking for an opportunity to sin, just to see, you're going to find something there. You will never go, well, I just want to see if there's some sin I could do out there. Let me just see what there is. Well, what you're going to find is wonderful temptation that looks delicious and great that you want to do. Anytime you go looking for sin, you're always going to find it. It's not going to stay hidden from you. And so Samson goes and he touches this dead body again. He even describes the way he eats the food out of it. He went on eating as he went. He's just strolling along, taking a snack, just having a great time. And his kind of lackadaisical nature as he's doing this shows the disregard that he has for the mission and the vows and the calling of God. He doesn't care that he's not supposed to eat things from dead bodies. He's just walking along doing it. Samson just seems so portrayed to us as someone who does not care about following God's mission because he repeatedly is doing what is wrong and then he goes and he gives his mother and father some of it and again, he doesn't tell them where it came from because he knows he's not supposed to have it and he knows what his parents will say and so he hides it from them again. So then he goes on in the next part and he has a wedding feast. It's about seven days long. Now the, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly but we can pretty much assume that a wedding feast is going to have some alcohol there. You could really assume that at most weddings here today. You can especially assume that back then because they really, they have water and they have wine. That, that's what they have. Those are their options for things to drink. And you have a seven-day wedding feast, there's going to be wine there. Doesn't tell us. We could probably assume based on everything else that Samson has done, he's probably also going to have some wine, at least maybe when his parents aren't looking. So it seems to be what he does. And so as he's there, as a part of this, he, we go to this long back and forth about riddles. Um, so he tells his guests, these Philistines, these 30 men that are there, you know, this riddle that's basically about, you know, honey or honey being in a lion. And if they can't figure out his riddle, they're going to owe him 30 pairs of clothes. And if he does figure it out, they're going to owe him stuff, right? It's kind of strange and weird. It's like, what is, what is going on here? What is this about? Why, is, why are we reading about riddles in the midst of this? Well, part of what's going on here, I think, is that Samson is really just trying to get things. He doesn't need 30 pairs of clothes. Okay, some of, maybe men in this room, maybe you don't have quite 30 pairs of clothes. Especially then, at this time, you don't have 30 pairs of clothes unless you're like the king. There's not a Walmart. There's not lots of places you can go buy lots of pairs of extra clothes. You might just have your one outfit. Maybe you have another backup one. Maybe you're really fancy. You got three. So what we see again is Samson portrayed as somebody who just is greedy and wants stuff. Well, I know that they can't figure out, so I'm really going to enrich myself with this. I'm going to get so many nice pairs of fancy clothes. So he does this, and the Philistines are upset that they can't figure this out. And so they go and they harass his wife. And we really shouldn't feel too bad for her, or we shouldn't look down upon her, because in verse 15, they tell her, Entice your husband to tell us what it is, or we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Tell us what this is or we'll kill you and we'll kill your family. We'll burn you to death. Okay, if somebody said that to me, said I'm going to burn your family alive, I'd say, sure, dude, what, what, almost whatever you want. That's fine, please. I'm, I'm, I'm a coward, okay? So that's, that's what's going to happen. Especially her. I mean, what, what can we expect her to do? 
So I think we should be too hard, hard on her because she does what any of us would do if there's a militia outside telling us that's what they're happening. So she goes and she kind of nags and, and begs and begs Samson to tell her and he pretends that, you know, it's because he loves her but not really. And he finally tells her and when the Philistines get it, he responds in 18 by saying, well, if you hadn't plowed my heifer, you wouldn't have found out my riddle. Now in Hebrew, that's just as insulting and demeaning as it is in English. Okay, talking about his wife that way. Samson's really not portrayed to us as very good here. So now he has to pay up. What's he going to do? Well, he responds in, in 19. He goes down to the town, to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town, just kills 30 random dudes, takes their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And at hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So that's how he pays up. He just strolls down to the next Philistine town, kills a bunch of people, takes their clothes, gives it back to them, probably bloody, says, here you go, and storms off angry. Throughout this chapter, and really the next two chapters as well, we're going to see that Samson just does not seem to care about God's mission at all. But all of these other ones, we've read about how judges raise up armies with them. Or they go and they kill the Philistine king or the foreign king by themselves. Or they go out and fight armies. We don't see any of that going on here with Samson. He's just kind of doing his own thing. And he's only killing Philistines out of anger and rage and really kind of self-centered at all. He's just out for himself. He's not interested in what God has called him to do. But we often have that same problem today, don't we? Not in, in killing Philistines, I hope, but our problem is you are normally are that we don't really care about God's mission. We've been given this mission to go into the world, to make disciples, to, to preach the gospel, to save people, to baptize them, to teach them, to go to the nations, to go into our neighborhoods, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're commanded to take up our cross and to follow after Jesus. But like Samson, we're frequently distracted and pulled off mission. We hear what God wants us to do and we think, ah, Maybe not today. Maybe tomorrow I'll do that. Or, no, no thank you. We can even see this. Um, one very small way that this happens is just when it comes to church, right? It's hard being in a new community if you've ever especially moved to a new area. One of the things that's really hard as a believer is trying to find a new church. Especially when there's lots of churches in town. I know when Bree and I went to Dallas, it was really hard to find a church. So now we're in one of the biggest cities in the world. And wow, there's lots of churches pretty much everywhere. You could spend, and we knew people who then would spend four years in seminary just visiting a different church every week, just trying to figure out which one they would go to. Then some of them never quite figured it out. And that can happen in a community like ours as well, which we're really blessed with close to over 100 churches. And that's a wonderful blessing. But the downside is that we can start to be tempted to evaluate communities of God based on what they have to offer us. Start to think, well, what does this do for me? How is this going to help me? How is this going to do what I want it to do? What programs do they have to offer me? What, what things for my kids do they have? And are they as good as somewhere else? And what is it? It's all about me. And what great events do they have that I can enjoy? And we can be tempted to ask questions that are more about us and our own mission than they are about God's. We can care about those things more, way more than we care about, well, hey, are they following Jesus? Do they know the Jesus that I know? Do they believe the Bible? Are they trusting the things that are important? Hey, is this church going to help me fulfill the Great Commission? Are they going to help me be on mission for God? Or too often we can just ask, is the church going to entertain me? Is it right in my eyes, not God's? That's just a small way we can get off mission. We get off mission in any number of ways. We get off mission and we start caring more about the politics of the world than we care about the mission of the kingdom of God. Get off mission, we care more about being comfortable and happy in this life 
than we care about doing what God wants us to do. We get off mission when we care way more about being served by others around us than we care about serving humbly. There's no end to the stuff that can distract us and get us off mission. I know I can tend to be a distracted driver. Um, Brianna will gladly attest to this, um, and she'll probably tell you more than I'm going to tell you now. So if you want to know more, you can ask her. Um, but I really, I just don't like to drive at all. Um, I tend to do it a lot, and I don't, don't really enjoy it. And so I get easily bored when I'm driving. And so what happens when I'm driving is I just start looking around for stuff to entertain me. And so what that means is I see signs, I will just start reading the signs aloud and tell Brie about every sign that I, that I see. Oh, I've never seen that one. Look, that's, you know, it's carpet land. They have carpets over there. That's cool. And I, I just do that. And I just look, oh, look, there's somebody interesting. What kind of dog is that? I wonder what they're doing. And so as you can imagine, if I'm doing that when I'm supposed to be driving, what happens is I start to, you know, swerve a little bit. And then Brie yells at me and I have to pay attention. So you can imagine this gets us in trouble. When you're driving, your focus shouldn't be on being entertained or on figuring out what is going on in the world around you. You should be on driving. Okay, keep your eyes on the road. What are other cars doing? This isn't time to be looking off over there. It's time to be here. And if you start drifting out of your lane, it can be very dangerous and it cannot be funny anymore. It can end tragically. But life is often like that. We're driving down. We're supposed to be driving down on the mission of God that he has given to us. And instead, we can start getting distracted by everything else around us in our life. And our eyes start to wander by anything and everything that grabs our attention. But when we do that, we can end in disaster. But there is good news for us, for those who can be like me and tend to get off mission. Our final point, point number three. God's plan does not depend on you staying on mission. God's plan does not depend on you staying on mission. Several years ago, when I first started preaching, this probably wouldn't have been my last point. Um, probably would have ended, you know, with a big application and tried to make you feel really guilty about ever getting distracted and being pulled off mission and you need to work harder and do harder and be better. Um, and I mean, in some sense, that's true. Like, we, we should stay on mission. God calls us to it. He tells us to do it. It's important. That is what we should do, and that should be our response. But I want you to look and see how God uses Samson. The key verse here is in 14.4. After Samson tells, him, tells his parents he wants to marry this Philistine woman, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. This is a strange verse, right? So Samson spending his entire life almost completely being off mission, doing whatever he wants, doing what's right in his own eyes, not living out his calling from God, continually engaging in sinful behavior. Yet we find this verse that's saying, well, his parents didn't know it was from the Lord. So there's a couple ways to understand it. What I don't think it's saying, I don't think that this is saying Samson's sinful desires were given to him from God. I don't think that's what it's saying, that God wanted him to go and marry people that he, who worshipped idols. I don't think he was saying God really was hoping that he would continually violate his vows and touch and eat unclean things. No, because God doesn't cause us to sin. He's not the author of sin. But what this does mean is that even Samson, who is trying actively to get as far away from what God wants him to do as he can and do whatever he wants and avoid living out God's mission, yet still God's mission is accomplished through him. God is able to use even the sinful desires of Samson to save his people from the Philistines. And he's saying, well, God is going to use it to seek an opportunity against the Philistines. God's plan doesn't depend on our obedience. 
It doesn't depend on us staying on mission. It doesn't even depend on Samson being obedient and doing what God wants him to do. Throughout this whole story, Samson never raises up an army. He never tries to save Israel. He doesn't really try to deliver the, to fight the Philistines for anyone other than himself. Yet God uses him. God uses him anyway. Because God can use even our sin, even our disobedience to bring himself glory and to do what he wants. We've seen this in our men's Bible study, right? As we've been looking at the men of the life of Joseph for the last several weeks. Joseph's life, he's often at the mercy of others. He has almost no control over his whole life. He's sold into sin by his brothers, that's, or into slavery, that's a sin. Because of the sin of Potiphar's wife, he's then thrown into prison for several years because he was, didn't do anything wrong. Then he's forgotten by the cupbearer and just left to rot for a while. And yet despite of all of this sin and all of the wrong done to him, Joseph ends up exactly where he needs to end up so that God can use him to save his family and the whole nation of Israel. God can use and does so often use the sinfulness of man to bring his purpose. And Joseph tells his brothers at the end, hey, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So even when Samson is intending for evil, God is using it to bring about what he wants. God can do everything that he needs. He doesn't need us to be perfect. He doesn't need us to be super obedient and do exactly what we should be doing at all times. And if we go against the will of God, then he throws up his hands and goes, oh no, it's all ruined. If only David would have listened, but now I have to start over from scratch. That is not our God. Our God can go even when we mess everything up. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. The cross is a wonderful example of this. As Jesus was hanging on the cross being executed, I'm sure the Pharisees felt like they won. I'm sure the Pharisees were celebrating. And they went and Jesus was arrested. And Jesus' disciples felt like it was all lost. That's why most of them other than John abandoned him and ran away because they thought we might be next. This, I guess this dream is over. And Peter was so ashamed he didn't even want to admit that he knew Jesus. The jig is up. We got to quit. Satan himself may have even felt like he was victorious. Well, Jesus died. And yet at the cross, we know Jesus won. His death was actually a victory. And the evil and the unrighteous things that men were doing to him was all a part of God's plan. It was exactly why he came in the first place. And he died as a substitutionary sacrifice to purchase our salvation for us. So that everyone in this room can have eternal life with Jesus in heaven forever. And partially this was accomplished by the evil acts of evil men who tried to stop him and couldn't. Well, if people who are actively trying to stop God's will, to stop God's mission from happening, and they fail, then I think that us who humbly stumble and fall seven times and yet get back up and are trying to follow God's mission, we can't mess up God's plan either. So our response doesn't have to be one of anxiety, but can be one of confidence. Because God doesn't need us to be the most righteous person that's ever lived in order to accomplish great things for Him. God has a mission and He has a call for all of us, and we're invited to participate with Him in it. Samson ignores it, and it still gets accomplished. Judas tries to sabotage the mission, and yet it's still accomplished. Peter tries to deny the mission, and yet Jesus invites him back in to participate again. The Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul tries to kill everybody involved in the mission, and yet God saves him and redeems him and then puts him in charge, and he writes more of the New Testament than anyone else. And he starts leading the mission. God's mission doesn't depend 
on you or me. And if we can't stop it by actively fighting it, if we, we definitely can't stop it through our own imperfect obedience. So the application for us is to live on mission. To live out the calling to which we've been called. And we should be encouraged. It's going to be accomplished. It's not on our own shoulders. It's on the shoulders of God. And He is going to do it. And so we kind of have the choice. You know, the reality is, if Jesus' mission is going to be accomplished, it's either going to be accomplished with us working alongside Him, or it's going to be accomplished with us working in spite of Him. And so what is your choice? What would you rather be? So this morning we've, we've looked at how we've all been given a call and a mission from God. Much like Samson, those ours is different. And we can choose like Samson. We can choose to follow God's mission or we can choose to follow our own mission. But whatever we choose, God's mission, His plan is getting accomplished. It doesn't depend on our own obedience. It depends on God. But if that's true, the choice is ours and what do we want to be? Do we want to be like Samson? Or do we want to be like Jesus? Which one would you rather be like? I'm going to close this in prayer and invite our worship team to lead us in one more song. God, I, I thank you that you are so good. Uh, Lord, that you invite your sons and daughters to go to work with you in the kingdom. Lord, that you give all of us a, a mission and a calling, that you care about all of our lives. Uh, I ask that you would help us, Lord. Uh, so often we are much like Samson. We get distracted, we get pulled off mission, or we just get plain rebellious and disobedient. Lord, I ask that you would drag us back to you, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon us, and we would be able to follow you obediently. And Lord, would we all get to participate in your mission to remake the world and for the gospel to go out and for people to be saved by your Son. Help us to be on mission, to be more like Jesus than like Samson. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior. Amen. Um, before I answer the benediction, before I forget, there is candy out back for anybody who would like some if you don't have enough left over at your place. Um, I was reminded by a friend that, you know, whether you do or celebrate or don't celebrate Halloween, um, surely there are evil ways to do it. But as believers, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that our Savior came back to life. And because of that, we can mock death and evil and celebrate it with joy because it's nothing to fear and it has no power over us. And also, as just thinking about today being anniversary of the Reformation, just thinking not just about the, the heroes of the men like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, whose names we know, but really that... We get to celebrate and the Reformation matters, not just because of those men, but because of the tens of thousands of people whose names we don't know, of the, the widows and the men and women who believe the truth about God's Word and were willing to give their lives for it and fight for it. And we'll get to meet them one day. But our benediction is from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Abound in hope this week. Go in peace.